Welcome to Inspired Surfers on Wavelength Community Radio in partnership with Jimmy's Iced Coffee. In this episode, Jim speaks to highly respected Irish surfer Fergal Smith, who in 2012, whilst duty-bound by air travel, decided to leave the professional circuit because of its impact on the environment. Instead, going back to his roots to build a community-led, sustainable farm. Ferg, how are you? I'm good, Jim. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Are you, are you, do you prefer to be Fergal or, or Ferg? Whatever suits you. Oh, man. Okay, well, we'll just keep it monosyllabic and Ferg, is, Ferg will yep. be it. That's perfect. Amazing. Um, how is life? What's going on? Uh, you've just described a little bit about your slightly hindered day with roadworks, etc. How, uh, how, how's West Coast of Ireland? It's good, yeah. Uh, it's February. Uh, started yesterday and we take uh, January off. It's the only month of the year that the farm is relatively quiet. So I've just had a month off and yeah, feel great overall, recharged and I don't really take time off from the farm. So it was a uh, great to do it. And now I'm back and yeah, and we were on an island for a month. So we were basically in a really different pace of slow and no car, just cycling with the kids and, and all that. So it was really mellow. And now I'm back on the mainland and mainland pace of life is a, takes a bit of getting used to. And yeah, it's a bit stressful actually. Which, which little, which little island were you on? Uh, the Aran Islands. So, oh, lovely. Yeah, yeah, on the big one. Much more. How beautiful. And what did you, what did you get up to there with your family? Just about switching off. It's like getting off the mainland. You've kind of left all the stuff behind. Is the big one. Like it's if you if you say you're taking time off, but you're still at home at the farm. It yeah it doesn't happen. So it's that getting away and um, yeah, and just we like living that kind of simple ways and on the bikes and we speak Irish there, which is what you know we'd love to do more of for our kids and have them around that. And that's a really big reason and there's surf there as well so i get to surf a bit and yeah you know they're very just a nice break really and it's it's nice that time of year because there's no tourists at all all the locals are really mellow you know they're not in their manic kind of tourist mode and they've got time to kind of chat and i love that kind of old ireland where they can talk about like the islands still have a, a lot of connection to how it used to be Mm-hmm. I had the memories of it and I love hearing those stories and chatting to old people on the island and asking you know all the history and stuff so I, I, I really like that kind of that buzz Are you normally getting that feedback from people in the pub or is that like anywhere you go? Anywhere you go like we we wouldn't really go to the pub or anything like that we'd just be on our bikes up and down the island but you'd, you know you'd be off in the weird corner of the island and there'd be some some farmer in a field checking his cows and they love it like you're there with your kids and they love people seeing them out and about on, you know, especially on the bikes and in January and it's, you know, not for the faint hearted. So they really want to know where you're from and what's your story. And, you know, and we, we, we've done it before. We did it two years ago. Um, and we plan to do it every year, just bl- block that month off. So we kind of are building connections with people there as well and telling them that we, we could, we'll see them next year. And they kind of get, they want to know you then a bit more. So yeah, it's nice. It's lovely. That's really cool, man. And is what happens with the farm in in Jan? Do you have are there other people there just to just to kind of keep it going while you're away? Yeah, I, I just got a guy who's been working with us to yeah, just 
you didn't have to do much. Like the garden is pretty much asleep. It's just mining the animals. So once a day, they need, they need to be checked and moved and do that. But it's yeah, it's simple enough that time of year. Man, that's lovely. And how, how many how many kids have you got, Ferg? Two girls. Yeah, uh, seven and nearly five. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I've got a um, I've got a boy and a girl. He's uh, he's eight and she's seven. Oh, wow. And I've just had number three. Um, so three, three and last. So I'm, I'm not sure what are you, are you, would you go again, do you think, or are you, are you done? I think we, like, when, when is this going to come out? No. Oh, it's, it's out. It's, uh, it's, she is out actually. <laughs> I want about this interview that we're doing. Oh, um, uh, the, I think probably next month, I believe, or the month after. Okay, well then I can tell you then we're, we're expecting another baby. <laughs> oh, man. This is good. Well, we haven't told anyone yet, so you're actually. All right, we'll make sure we'll just put it at the end if it's if it does end up coming at the wrong time. So when, when's when's due date? Uh, not until August. Oh wow! Oh man, and summer baby—that's great. Well, it's yeah, not so good for the farm life because it's going to be pretty busy. Uh, <laughs> all good. It's it's never the right time though, is it? It's always there's always something going on. Yeah, no, no, yeah, sure. I I be I'm I'm all for ten kids. Like I'm I'd be mad for it all the time. Oh man, good but on I, you. I'm not the one who has to do it, so I can't really uh, <laughs> push that <laughs> too hard. And are, are you uh, are you finding out what you're having? No, no. Okay, we like to guess. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. We did the same thing. There's a, that, that surprise factor is, is very, very cool. Oh man. That's, that's fantastic. And you know what the age gap I reckon from, well, your youngest will be, well, still, will still be um, five. Yeah, man. It, the difference is that the, the help that you get is so yeah. good. I mean, they're, they're not very good at holding yeah. youngest. Sorry. What's your gap now between the youngest? Um, se- Seven years. Hey, okay, Wow. Yeah. So yeah, they can they can pick her up, and they might like constrict her slightly, but at least they can pick her up and drag her around the house, or like dance at the yeah. baby just to kind of keep her tied over for a little bit while she might be whinging. But the thing is, like having uh, an only child again, and you know, it's like two separate groups like kind of going on now. Yeah. 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 It's cool. Oh man. Well, um, good luck with having ten. Um, yeah. Well, I don't think I think that, that number three is enough. I think. Yeah. Yeah. But we've got a. Uh, an ex-chairman of ours, who's actually a non-exec director on the on our in, in our company, is a guy called Simon, and uh, he's got eight kids. Wow! And uh, and it wasn't a case of trying because he only had one sex. He he had a, he had a girl and then a boy and then another six girls. Wow! <laughs> <laughs> Holy moly! Yeah, so they're, they're they're ranging from kind of like primary school all the way up to like second year of university. So he's just got the whole he's got the whole range. But doesn't it make life so exciting? Like, honestly, like, you know, people think, you know, kids are just you know, hard work and sleep deprivation and, you know, you, you lose a lot of your freedom and your life kind of has to go on hold, which is 100% true. But then also just the the whole excitement of life, like, it's like, it's what it's all about. Like, it really is. And you can't really explain it until you're kind of in it. In the thick of it, yeah. I mean, I mean even my life, you, you forget how... You think, oh, you've been on the planet for so many years now. You should know this kind of stuff. But they're still so, so innocent and so like they haven't got a clue. Like Kip, my boy, was saying, um, "Daddy, do you know, you know, do you know the difference between the past and the present and the future?" And and when my girl just 
just butts in. She's like, yeah, the past was 1666. <laughs> okay, that's, that's, that's great. I'm glad you think that that's the only date that marks the past. And then you try and explain it. And then she's like, oh, so it could have just happened now. Like, yeah, I was like, we were scooting to school. And I was like, you see that lamppost that you, that you scooted past? Like, that's now in the past. You, you just did that. She's like, oh, wow. I thought it was like hundreds of years ago. It's really sweet. It's so sweet. 1666, is that the Great Fire in London? It must be, because that's what she's learning about at school at the moment. She's actually just come home with a drawing of basically just a blaze and these houses. And I was like, that's not so pretty. Um, what is that? And she was like, oh, it's the Fire of London. And you're like, okay, then that, that's kind of, that's fine. I, I was reading about it last night. Really? My kids, yeah. Oh, that's that's really cool, man. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a, a, there's a theatre in London that, they were doing a Shakespeare play. So it wasn't to do with the fire of London, but they were letting off cannons in the play and the tash roof went on fire. Oh, right. I don't know. If that was, I don't think it was the fire of London, but it was just on about fires in London and stuff. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Oh, wow. That's, pre- that's pretty nuts. So we're both chatting about the same thing with our families. There you go. Yeah. And how is, uh, just a, uh, a, a kind of question on, how, how do you deal with, um, I mean, it's amazing what you're doing with your farm and stuff, but like, West coast of Ireland, this kind of time of year, you know, it's, it's got to be pretty, pretty hardcore, right? Physically, mentally, it's, you know, taking a battering from the, from the weather. And I, I read up a little bit about like you're in, you invite other people to come and work on the farm with you. So it's not such a lonely process. It's, can you, can you, uh, can you expand on that and how you kind of got into it? Well, see, the thing is I grew up doing it, so it's not anything new to me. Like I can see how people really do struggle with it, but mm. I I don't, I don't, I barely see it and I certainly don't, it doesn't bother me because I, I really enjoy it. Like I actually, yeah, I suppose I grew up on a farm and I grew up hill walking and camping, you know, all through the winter. So, and then surfing obviously. And yeah, I've just always spent most of my life kind of in the weather being wet and cold, you know, mm. majority of my life. So I don't really see it as like some. A hardship anymore it's just you know it's just the seasons and i love all the seasons i love winter obviously because it's a great ways but i love the darkness and the time just to be inside a bit more and refocus. Mm-hmm. as soon as you know i just follow the daylight as soon as it's bright i'm up from you know 5 a.m 4 a.m in the summer till 10 at night so i just kind of i love all the seasons and so i don't yeah i don't feel it as a hardship now my wife <laughs> really sees the winter as tough like she finds yeah the darkness and no sunlight she just craves going to somewhere sunny and mm. um, she's got um bad joints arthritis in her joints and uh the damp is just horrific for her like it's, so yeah I, I can really see how it is tough for people but i unfortunately i kind of almost enjoy it or uh, like laugh at, when it gets really tough i find it kind of funny or something <laughs> <laughs> be laughing at your missus <laughs> i'm not laughing at her but i just laugh how some people find it so tough where i just kind of almost i don't know I, I like the i i like seeing what the weather would bring and you know it's yeah it's kind of just i don't know it's it, everything's an experience and it depends how you look at it and yeah it's tough like for farming wise like for me personally it, it doesn't bother me but then for the farm and then even the knock-on is your business Mm. bad runs of weather like you know it does get you down in the fact like geez we haven't had like any dry weather or i remember this 
some were gone. Uh, I think it was August. The first week or two of August was a really kind of muggy, wet period. Mm. And all our salad outside just got manky and wet and then uh, kind of mold, mildewy, moldy and stuff. So I was pretty much without salad for like then the next six weeks because I had to, ca- I had to redo everything. And that's a real headache because then you're going back to all your restaurants and saying, sorry, we've had this, you know, shit period of weather and it's knocked on to all this. So then you got all these stresses to manage. Yeah. That's weather can be very frustrating. Yeah. It doesn't bother me physically or emotionally in the moment. It's more about, yeah, and bad weather for your animals. You feel it like you're just like, oh, it's tough now, you know, like it's whatever wet out there and they, you know, have young cats or lambs or something. There's those kind of things that you play on you and stuff, but no, I, I don't mind the weather. And um, what what, is, what does your wife do to um, kind of negate the, uh, the 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 physical pain of the arthritis and also just the pain of like not having sunshine? Because I grew up in Dubai in Middle East. Wow. I, was for, I was born there and lived there for 18 years. And um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big. I mean, I love sunshine. I think it's, it's like one of the greatest things ever. And I get. And then someone says, "Oh, why don't you get one of these SAD like like lamps that just <laughs> kind of like." And obviously that's, that is a sad light. And I'm just like, I'm just, I'm not, I'm not a tortoise. I'm not just going to sit there and like fast <laughs> in some kind of like weird light. I need to go, I need to go on holiday. But I guess, you know, when you've got kids and, you know, you're, you're perfectly happy where you are. And then, you know, what, what does your wife do? Yeah, it's, it's a very good question. And uh, we constantly go round and round with this. Um, <laughs> like she, she lived in New Zealand for years and Australia, so. You know, she she came back from New Zealand on holidays, and then unfortunately met me. Like she wasn't planning on back to Ireland at all, so she came back on holidays and has never left. So, like, she left all, yeah, all her stuff was still there, and all her you know her life was there. So she was kind of like she still you know has a lot of friends there and talks to them and pines to go back a lot. Mm. I have no interest in the world, like so it's. And yeah. even the fact that I have no interest and it's not even an option for me can be a little bit of a bone of contention because she, she wants even the, the idea that she can go back. It doesn't even matter, even if it doesn't happen. Yeah. The fact that I have no interest whatsoever is not ideal. So yeah. and then we come back to like, what about Spain? And I'm like, still no interest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it is tough. But uh, we're also in the thick of it with the kids and the farm. So she realizes don't really have the time money energy to do it mm. she realizes that i think um it'll be when the kids are a bit older and she'll probably go on a sun holiday herself because right? i probably won't be that interested yeah um, but yeah and we do like the long term would be that you know we have a real interest in sailing and i don't travel by planes anymore and i just don't really want to travel in that kind of fast pace that i used to yeah so but I'd love to travel to the places I went to or just travel in general by boat. Like that to me would be a real adventure with the kids or even just me and, me and my wife. So yeah, like long-term, if the farm gets, you know, stable and is financially doing it well, then we could head off for a few months a year and sail to Madeira or the Canaries or do things like that. Um, I yeah. always want to sail to Iceland. That's where I want to go, or up to Norway or something. But <laughs> I don't think that would uh, be on the, the list. For no us. cold, no colder. Just go south. Go south. <laughs> All the adventures north, though. Like south has been done. Like true, yeah. true. But no, it'd be amazing. Go to the Azores and Madeira. Like those kind of places would be really cool. 
Yeah. So and for, for the people that are listening in at the moment, that they're probably going to be wondering why you, you don't do plane travel anymore. And I, 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 I know because I've, I've read up all about it, but would you mind kind of just expanding on, on that? And then, you know, obviously a little bit about your, about your fairly heroic past. Yeah, well, I suppose there's so many ways to look at it. Um, one is, there's no, a simple one is I run a farm. And as soon as when I realized I wanted to run a farm, I was like, well, I'm not going anywhere. You know, that's it. Like, so it's easy just to say you don't fly. And then, then it, I think we're, it's really tricky for Westerners having so much choice. I think choice is actually a real big problem. And when you have choice, like, oh, yeah, I could go there and I could do this. And I think that's always a, uh, more complicated so saying i don't fly just makes things way easier and it just narrows out loads of options and keeps life simpler for the farm so it's practical in a way another big one is i just felt guilty like i honestly at the last couple of years when i was traveling the last year i remember anyway i did 18 long-haul flights in one year in Mm -hmm. about three months not even a year wow and i was like yeah and i was doing that full on like for the years before as well and I had a thing, I was like, there should be a quota on how many flights you can have in a, in a lifetime. And mm. I reckon there's no quota out there, but I reckon I surpassed it. <laughs> I reckon I went way above what's, you know, reasonable and necessary to get around the world and do, you know, whatever, see things like most of the planet will never even get on a plane. And here I am just doing it for the fun, just doing surfing. So yeah, that's a big one. And then because I was traveling and seeing all these beautiful places and I was going back to them year after year and they were getting more like environmentally degraded, like there was more problems, more pollution, you know, it just it wasn't a pretty sight, me, this, you know, high flying surf dude flying into beautiful countries and seeing the place getting more built up, and more pollution. And I'm like, that's not going to get go away. Like that's not going to stop happening if I am just doing what I'm doing, flying around. And then the big moment was I was in Tahiti and the tsunami happened in Japan and the nuclear plant was sinking in the sea. And I was sitting there, I had I'd injured my leg and I was sitting on a couch watching the news, which I normally wouldn't be doing. And it just kind of hit me. Like I was in the same ocean as it. And I was like, this is really bad. Like (laughs) really, really bad stuff is happening. And what the hell am I doing? Like, what am I doing that is of any benefit to the planet? Like Mm. I I get on another flight, I go over there, I surf, I have a great time. And then I do it again. And and then what is enough? Like when is enough? That's the other one. It's like I had these dreams of going to Tahiti, you know, surfing the best waves in the world. and I kind of did it and I was doing it. And then, you know, I went to Tahiti eight times and I'm like, well, how many times more do I need to go? Yeah. So I basically just said, you know what? No one's going to tell me that answer and it's never going to be easy to stop. But actually I'm just, then I, the light bulb was like, I like farming. I always have, I always knew I'd come back to it. Mm-hmm. And then when I felt uncomfortable about the way I was living, I was just like, that's what I want to do. I always knew I wanted to do it at some point, and then I just said, "The sooner I start, the more likely it'll actually happen." Yeah, that's a great point. It's interesting. Like someone was saying to me the other day, because just talking about like dream cars that you can have, and there's a there's a classic Mercedes that I really really like, and they said, "Just dude, just don't ever buy it because if you as soon as you get your dream car, 
it's not going to be anything like the dream. It'll, no. You'll just be disappointed. And it's kind of like that, maybe that Tahiti kind of thing of like, you know, wanting to go, like, what's your favorite, where, where would you love to go and surf in the world? And do you just park it as a dream or do you actually go and do it and then go, oh, well, what's now, what, what's next? There's no, there's no, you know, there's nothing after that, especially if it's been a dream for such a long time, you know? Yeah, I, I even, and then I was surfing with the, quite a, similar group of surfers like we're all chasing swells and all those top surfers are on the same you know kind of swell chasing patterns mm -hmm. often go to the same spots and all this stuff so i'd be seeing the same surfers and and they'd be far more uh high flyers than me like you know getting paid more and just whatever they were just more at it and they'd be doing 100 flights a year when i was doing my 20 kind of thing and I'd be like, you know, delighted I got to Tahiti and the swell would be running out. And I'd be like, and then I would always stay on. Like I always stay in Tahiti because it's such an expensive place to go. I'd stay for maybe a month or six weeks. But the day the swell is like dipping, all these pro surfers are like, let's go to Mexico and chase the swell on. Like let's get mm -hmm. to Mexico and get it then. I'm like, hold on. Like this is just too much. It actually, and it didn't look like they were even that happy. Like it looked like they were just... It was almost like they had to do it and, yeah. you know, they had to perform for the, the show that they, you know, that they're, they're the best and all that kind of stuff. And I was like, you know what? I don't really want to be in that game anymore. Mm. I was delighted. I was, you know, it was amazing times. I got amazing waves. I got paid to do it. Nothing bad about it. But then I was like, I actually don't want to live like this. And I love where I'm from and I love the waves at home. and yeah, I'm just going to go there and do something that I like doing as well. It kind of, what year did you do this? Because it sounds like you kind of tapped out quite early and a bit of ahead of the curve with regards to carbon emissions and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I was about 24, so and I'm 34 now, so it's 10 years ago. Okay, yeah, so 20... Oh, no, 2012. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's, it's really honourable, man, that, that you've that you've done that, and it'd be, I'd love to know, you know, how many other people have kind of done the same thing as you within that within that kind of elite surfing space where they kind of put their hand up and go actually yeah i've i've been around the world hundreds of times and i don't necessarily need i've got i've definitely had my fix and what am i going to go and do now that's actually demonstrates that i don't need to keep doing this all the time yeah it'd be a lovely evolution of uh, humanity i think if we could you know just say i've had enough you know like mm -hmm. as there's not just things enough in in uh, consumerism kind of you know endless growth mentality and I think kids is a and I I decided to do this before I had kids um but I think kids are an amazing thing of like yeah it's not about you like it's <laughs> you don't need to constantly be a big kid and have uh, all your needs met all the time it's it's nice to stop and, and almost sacrifice some of your time for for bigger purposes than yourself like there's something mm. really selfless and you know there's there's an amazing feeling when you give yourself to something else and then then just yourself and i don't think that's really in the surfing culture predominantly and yeah it'd be nice like i remember i was in T i was in fiji had a big swell on that last year and all the top guys were there and afterwards kelly slater was there as well and i was there with him for a few days afterwards and lovely guy and we were chatting away and all this stuff and then actually in the end i felt very kind of sad and, and sorry for him in a way because i you know was only in my 20s and i was already feeling kind of done like i was already just keen to get, go home and 
mm. kind of something else. And he was just like, oh, there's a swell going to Costa Rica. You might want to go there. And he was telling me all these places to go. And and I was just thinking, you know, he's in his 40s and he's still like the the hunger. Like, it's great, the hunger. It pushes people to be amazing, you know, athletes. And I hats off to them. But it's like, it's like you're feeding the beast and it's never satisfied. And mm. something kind of sad and like, wow, he surfed every wave in the world, you know, as good as it can be surfed. You can keep surfing, obviously, but just to be a bit more content with like having enough, or I don't know, it was just like I I didn't want to end up like that kind of thing. I was like, actually, yeah, I'm. I don't need to be constantly craving more, more, more. It's it's not. It didn't look that healthy or feel that healthy to be around. Yeah, it'd be interesting to ask him. You know, if you you have ten years of, and you're not getting on, a, you're staying in one country for the next ten years. Where are you going to stay, and what are you going to do? Be quite nice to know what you know where they think they'd actually end up just being happy, just kind of hanging out and doing their thing. Yeah, I actually what I did uh, when I first stopped, I, I emailed a few pro surfers, Mick Fanning, Dave Rastovich, a few others, and I just kind of proposed an idea. I was like, you know, why don't we do a thing where we say we're not going to travel for one year and just make a bit of a statement about it? Because hmm. I had this idea that surfers could evolve into conscious humans that kind of said, "Look, yeah, you can fly anywhere in the world you want to go, but pick, as you say, pick your place. It could be you might be from, you know, New Zealand or wherever, but you might want to live there, and you pick it, and then that's it, and be content with that, and then show the surfing community that you still get to surf. You could be in the most amazing place." Mm. and just be a bit you know more kind of grounded in that place and be a part of that place rather than just taking taking and, and flying around yeah um, but yeah it was just uh, an idea but i uh, i didn't get a reply back <laughs> from anyone <laughs> so uh, i don't think they're you know it's pretty you can't you can't tell people to change but it was just an idea i just thought if a few people did it together and say look for a year i'm just going to stay in one place and also make like a video about it and a full story around it, what swells yeah. they got in that year. It could be a quite interesting story. Yeah, totally. And it's nice the fact that, you know, you, what you've done in terms of coming back and you're not only like, you haven't just got, gone and got a job and you're, and the surf's on the doorstep. You've actually started something, you know, very earthy, um, excuse the pun, um, and very, you know, very like beautifully basic and you're including the community and you're, you know, you're putting good food into 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 people, which is you know at the heart of everything, really. So, like, hats off to you, man. It's really really cool. Yeah, no, it is, and that's the thing. I I'm trying to. I don't know if anyone wants to listen. It's like, and you can't know. It's like it's like being a parent. You don't know until you know what it feels like. But yeah, it looks like I've sacrificed loads, and I've you know I've no free time, I've no money, <laughs> I work really hard, all that kind of stuff. But the reward of feeding people in your community that really like are really grateful for it and it's going into like families and kids and, you know, and you're seeing the land get better each year and you're you know watching the trees grow that you've planted, like those feelings are unquantifiable. Like you cannot put measure or words or numbers on any of that kind of kind of substantial grounding feelings. They're yeah. They're like, yeah, they're like, you know, tingly on your insides they're not in a bank balance it's like walking around your farm and you're seeing really healthy animals that you know that are you know doing really well and the land is looking really well and and you're, you're going to markets and you're, you're feeding people like they're, they're really there's nothing to do with the finance really there even though you have to 
work on that side of it a lot otherwise you won't be there but it's yeah. it's certainly not for those reasons that you're working it's those feelings it's like having kids you're not up at 3 a.m with a sick child happy about it it's, mm. well, it's the most horrible thing to happen when you have got sick kids but it's all those little moments in every day where they crack a smile they do something funny and you just you know watching their learning through their eyes is just amazing it's the same kind of stuff like so you know the feeling of mm. you know, watching kids it's that kind of you're a part of something that's really real and feels good to be around and yeah like i just i wish more people could feel it like because if you look at practically farming uh, on a practical basis it you're committed to it you cannot leave uh <laughs> you're you're seven days a week it's not an eight hour day and you never really get paid for it and yeah it's it's just a, it's a really bad job basically if you're looking at it from a job perspective hmm. you've no free time so it's just it doesn't add up to in a western culture where we're so programmed to eight hour days and weekends off and holidays it's it's very hard to tell someone to give all that up hmm. it's, it's like having kids it doesn't make any sense but then it makes total sense when you're in it yeah, I mean, because farming gets, you know, you, everything's so cheap and everything's so throwaway. And I guess that must be one of your biggest bugbears of, you know, when when money when money doesn't come in as much as you, you'd kind of hope so you can expand the business or do whatever else you need to do and you're, you're selling stuff for as cheap as possible. But I guess you also kind of want to convince people that they should be paying more because it's, it's organic. You absolutely love what you do. You're in, producing incredible produce. Yeah, it's bonkers. You know, it's a huge, you know, you're going against a massive advertising machine of like basically the supermarket chains. Like they took over the food industry since the late 60s. And yeah, that's that's where it all changed. They basically are, you know, selling that like two for one cheap food kind of idea. But like food is what keeps you alive <laughs> like it's the only thing you need you don't need the car you don't need the phone you don't even need like majority of the stuff like mm -hmm. but people will spend any amount of money on a house a car all those things like people will spend huge amounts of money but the thing that you need every day three times a day that keeps you from getting sick makes you feel well on your inside keeps your brain functioning all these kind of things we spend little we spend less uh amount of our income on food now than we ever have in history yeah like ever like you know yeah. the and then you see cultures that like food like italy and france they still spend about a quarter of their wages on food mm. in ireland spend nine percent of their wages on food yeah so nine percent to 25 percent. that's that's such a big difference but then you, when you look at italy and you see the people they, you know the food is is everything you know yeah. it's, it's family it's community it's like it's at the heart of every kind of social occasion. And then when you get, like, when you do get a, a French or an Italian coming to our markets, like, oh, my God, there's such a breath. They're like, oh, my God, this food is so good. And they're just, like, all enthusiastic and they're smelling the food. Like, because they have, they have a culture. They have an actual culture, a food culture around things that taste good. And, and they're in, and, like, they know when things are in season. Like, oh, you've got these now. Wow, that's great. Mm. But, you know, Irish people just don't have a clue like they just don't mm. have a clue about eating or what's good for them or anything so you're just you're banging your head against yeah a uh, fast food con con convenience model that mm. is very very hard to be broken like yeah it's, it's 
So it is tough. That is really tough. But at the same time, it is all going the right way. And, you know, even though it is very wrong at the moment, it's, it is all going the direction it should be going. It just is the, the powers that be have a lot of power and they're not going to let go of that advertising, uh, propaganda anytime soon. But mm. their game is up. Like they don't really like every, you know, study, research, gut health, you name it. Like it's all pointing where we need to go. Yeah. It's just, you know, the people who have these businesses are going to try and get their money into those places first and then, then it'll change. But it's, yeah. yeah, it's tough. It's tough to kind of have great food and people don't even value it, you know. And then even people say that it's expensive and you're like, you know, there's a great guy in, in America, Joel Salatin, and he's done like the maths on it where he's like, so you buy your cheap convenience, fast food, whatever. So that's really cheap. And then you go to the hospital or doctor four times a year. And then you go to the pharmacy 15 times a year. Yeah. You're out of work this, this many days because you're sick. Mm-hmm. And then he's like, and then you buy our food, which is say twice the price or three times the price. And you never have to worry about all that other stuff. You never go to the pharmacy and you're never off work and you feel good and you feel healthy. And the huge one that like, never mind all that stuff, that's just personally. When you buy cheap food, you are literally destroying the environment <laughs> you are degrading soil and polluting soil and losing soil with every purchase of bad food but when you buy good like regenerative food you are building soil and literally each one is like the world's going down or the world's going up and which one do you want to support so <laughs> it should be almost like if that got into advertisements that when you buy good food, you're not only making you feel good and you're paying a local farmer, you're actually going to secure, you know, biodiversity and soil health for future generations. If people could put a price on that, which they haven't yet, then the price of that food should be, you know, again, way more expensive. But mm. We're not there yet, but it's it's going that way. So it feels like like loading the front end of your life with really good quality food will save you in the long run of all the other of all the other issues yeah and it's you know i I, obviously it's my bandwagon that i'm on in in a big way but like it really is if you're looking at all the world's problems if you're looking at health you're looking at biodiversity uh, climate change i don't know social issues mental health all these things like in a nutshell supporting you know that you're regenerating the soil is all the climate biodiversity all that side of things and then the good food is your mental health. It's not not being sick. It's all the all like all the diseases, all that stuff has come from industrial agriculture. Like mm-hmm. you look at the trajectory of all the cancers in the world and all that stuff. Like they didn't exist before the fifties, mm-hmm. and you see the chemical come into agriculture. And then it was in the nineties. They used to only spray um, certain chemicals for weeds and stuff. But then they, it was an Irish guy, actually, which is the most horrific thing. Like, so it's really hard to get a harvest in a damp climate because the grain doesn't ripen and, you know, well enough when it's really damp and stuff. So he sprayed glyphosate basically on the grain when it's fully growing. And what it does is it just takes all the foliage off mm-hmm. and basically just nukes it and it dries quicker. And now they call it like a crop treatment or something like this. But anyway, that became normal practice to spray off um grains before they're harvested to make getting them riper and 
drier easier. And when that happened, like literally the correlation between all the diseases which went at the exact same time. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, like it's that simple. All these problems that we're dealing with and all these cancer charities and all these things that are trying to solve at the end. Mm. It's like go to the beginning. Yeah. Look yeah. after the soil, eat good food, done. We're finished. We don't even need to talk anymore. <laughs> when, when when you when you started your um farm you had is it half an acre you you started with yeah so like i'm from mayo which is you know a good few hours away from claire um and where my parents are and i could have taken over my parents farm but i was living in claire because i like the waves there and yeah i just didn't feel the pull to be back see where my family are we don't live near the sea and i hated the driving like i just hated driving to the sea and i didn't want to grow up like that with my kids so yeah so I wanted to be in Clare, but no land. And then, yeah, I just was kind of putting the word out. I was starting little gardens for people. While I, when I first got back, I did like 12 gardens for friends around the place. And then, yeah, local business guy said, oh, I've half an acre there overgrown if you want it. And that was it. So we started there and that was a little community garden. And how did you, how did you become a soil, a soil specialist? And I was like, how, how how did you become a such a soil specialist and know that and then and could you expand on regenerative um farming and and soil and how does how, how did that kind of come about knowing that the soil is the problem and we need to fix the soil to make the plants grow as opposed to being a novice like me and just blaming it on the weather or I'm just crap at farming yeah uh well I grew up in you know organic uh horticulture that's what my parents do so it's you know since I was four years of age I've been in the garden with my dad loving it. Like I've always loved it. And he's taught organic courses all his life and he's been in magazines. So he's been a bit of a organic pioneer in Ireland. So it's always been in me and I've always known that. And I think anyone who farms anyway, half decent anyway, knows that soil is the, the foundation. It's the basics and you have healthy soil and everything else works. Mm. But I, the big difference for me was like my dad was just organic uh, vegetables. That was it. And herbs and veg, that was his thing. Whereas I've always sensed like it's a very man-made thing. You know, you're just deciding to put vegetables in this place. It's not natural in the wild to have vegetables in a row. You know, it's it's very much, a, you know, we need fruit and vegetables and herbs and stuff. Uh, and it's always on a small acreage generally. It's just a small garden size when it's done on human scale. But how is the ecosystem minded? How is the land managed? And it's predominantly managed by livestock. So I, and trees, and I really wanted to do the whole thing. I wanted the mixed farm. I knew that since day one. And then the more I looked into it, then um, uh, what came up, where did I first hear about it? I'm trying to think. Maybe Richard Perkins um, is a guy up in Sweden. Um He's one of the early guys that I probably got re-inspired by. But Alan Savory would be uh, the kind of the real guru of uh, regenerative agriculture. Um, he's been harping on it about this for 60 years and no one's listened to him until you know, the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. uh, but he started a thing called the Savory Institute. Okay. And then they have the training is called holistic management. So I heard about this holistic management training. I did the very first holistic management training that was ever done in Ireland. That was about I don't know, seven years ago. And it was in Cork, actually, here. Um, and that was eye-opening. Like, that's basically, it's a decision-making framework. So it's basically, you're, 
whatever you're managing. You might be managing half an acre or 5,000 acres. So how do you manage the whole system? And mm -hmm. it's a way of thinking rather than, you know, this is what you do. So you just how it's a philosophy more than anything. And it's amazing philosophy because it's like, so you make a plan, you get all the information, you might pull in scientists, whatever, you might look at the internet, but you get all the information you can gather about your thing that you're managing. It could be a business, could be anything. And then you go, what's your context? What do you want? Like, What do you want to achieve? Like, It doesn't mean it's wrong that if you want to make loads of money, but it's just what you want. So you write down what your context is. Mm. And every decision you make has to be going towards that context or you're never going to be happy. Simple yeah. as that. Yeah. So many people, get, for example, get into dairy farming and they complain that they never have a day off. But if your context is, I want to have a day off, don't be a dairy farmer. Done. And then you're going to be happy. Yeah. But if you're happy with dairy farming and that's your passion, then you're going to enjoy it. So it's very simple. Once you realize what's the context you want, and then that's a really good one. So you make your plan, and then you monitor the plan, and you see how the plan is going. And you said, when you do a plan, you are going to be wrong. It'll never be right. But all you can do is monitor it and wait for it to go wrong. <laughs> and when it goes wrong, you have to be humble enough to admit it's wrong and then just replan and start again. <laughs> and that's it. That's it. That's great. And it's so good because in farming, for example, like, you know, the EU comes up with all these amazing, you know, well thought out academic research ideas and all this stuff. And then they come down, they trickle down to farmers and they're just completely wrong. Like they're not fit for purpose. It was a great idea in Brussels, but it does not work in the West of Ireland. Yeah. And we can't admit that it's wrong. You know, the, the money's there, the grant's there. We're giving farmers money to do this, even though it's completely counterproductive. It's actually destroying the environment. Mm. And we just can't admit it. We cannot say, hands up, we're wrong. We, we messed up there. We scrapped that idea. We'll start again. Mm -hmm. Instead, we like, add another idea on top of that broken idea to try and fix that idea. And then a new technology that's going to fix that problem a little bit more. And you're just like, no, the idea is wrong. It just doesn't work. That's just, it's fine. It's, it's okay to be wrong. And yeah, I love that. So much of this, this conversation is so much about the, just waiting till the end to, to start figuring things out as opposed to just making it right at the beginning. This is a really, really important point. It is. And it's, it's amazing philosophy because you just go, look, I'm going to be wrong. I can't, like nature is so complex. Mm -hmm. And it's not like on about farming. It's just anything like, you know, building a road through a city or something. Like it's very hard to think of everything. Like it's very tricky. So you're going to get it wrong. And as it's going wrong, just be really ready to catch it and then tweak it and, and, and replan it and replan it and constantly. And then you'll have the best plan at the end. Mm never going to have the best plan at the beginning because you just don't know what's going to happen yeah man and that's that's totally true and um, with yeah. um with, with nature and all of that kind of stuff moving just into a little bit of your um into you know one of your main passions of surfing um how, how's it been for you this winter so far and have you have you got out much and what's it like now when you're towing into something large when you've got two kids and other things wearing in the back of your mind well i don't i haven't towed in to anything I'd say since since that ten years I came back, oh, I think I'm trying to think when the last time I the last trip I did, um, 
I, I think I did one more flight. I, that's it. So I did a big, this crazy year of 18 flights and then I said, I'm done. But the last trip I had was to Tahiti and I did a one way and then I went on to Australia. But when you, fl- when you book a ticket, it's the same price to do a return. So I, I, I left the return for a year out. And then the next year I was done with traveling, but someone said, have you seen the swell for Tahiti? And I was like, oh God. <laughs> I'll, I'll just look and see if my return ticket is finished, if it's still okay. in date or not. And I had a week left or 10 days left on the return ticket for the swell. And it was a toe swell. And I never used to go to Tahiti on toe swells. I used to only ever go on like, you know, the, the eight, 10 foot, day, like the paddle days. Mm. And um, this is a toe swell. And so I'd never been there on a toe swell and I'll never go back again. So I said, you know what, I'll go. And uh, I kind of just went there to watch. I paddled up to the swell and afterwards. And then on the toe day, I was just happy watching. And I sat there all day watching. And it was really nice, actually, because I, I uh, Mark Healy and Clanny Chapman, I know them not well, but I know them from seeing them at different swells over the last few years. And um, they were towing in together. That was it. They were towing in together. And there's all these tow teams. And it's horrendous, man. Like, those guys in the lineup there, $200 in a Ziploc bag, waving it at uh, jet skis. To give them a go. Get towed in. Oh, was, my. That's like yeah. flapping down a taxi in New York City. Totally. And, you know, there's about 12 jet skis buzzing around. And there's all these people just trying to get a go. And I was just like, I want anything to do with this. This is just horrendous. It's like pornography. Like, everyone just wanting to get a wave so they can get a photo. And I was like, oh. And it was at the end of the day. And the sun was going down. And I was just happy out watching. And Mark Healy buzzes over to me and he's like, um, you've been sitting here all day and all these guys are being hassling us to get a toe. And he's like, of all the people sitting in this channel, you're the only one who deserves to have a go. Oh, nice. Yeah. And I was like, wow, like that's really nice of him. But like sun is going down and then, you know, in a tropical country, when the sun goes down, it goes down really quick. It's just mm. like, Doo. and I was like, there's eight, 10 jet skis in front of me. Like the odds of me and, and the sets in Tahiti are like 20 minutes apart. Right. You know, they're really long way. It's going to be longer. So I was like, you know, we'll gr- we'll drive out the back. It'll get dark and, we'll, you know, be nice to have a chat and that's it. And I'll drive in or whatever. So I didn't think I was going to get a waiver. And then we're out the back and there's Jamie O'Brien and there's Ray Manna and there's all these top guys in front of me. And I'm like, ah, yeah, I'll watch them get away. Pretty, pretty cool to see. And then a big set comes and everyone says, go Ferg. I was like, whoa, <laughs> <laughs> I'm on. And uh, yeah, so I got, I got a toe wave. I think, that's, I think that was the last to- time I towed a wave. And what I got absolutely smashed. Right? Oh, you got uh, smashed. Yeah, well, I, don't, I never surfed there. I never towed in there before. And when I tow waves in Ireland, most of the waves are slabs where you kind of, you're kind of trying to slow down and like backdoor a bit of a, a peak. Whereas Tahiti is like this freight train that just goes down the reef. And yeah. I looked, afterwards and they basically just go straight yeah you just go really really fast and just go straight go down go straight and come off yeah as i was going in i did my little fade back and like slow yeah. slow down a bit yeah uh, so yeah i got an amazing view and got to you know see this beautiful like you know horseshoe you know bend down the reef and yeah. see all the boats at the end and then they went when i was gone wow we yeah but i don't know i don't think i ever told when i got back Maybe I did, but I don't think so. But yeah, I haven't, I don't tow surf anymore. And that was kind of, yeah, from not traveling, I've not been interested in that. And, but 
the other thing about surfing now is I'm not surfing half as much. So I, I'm not being cocky, but I feel I could still surf the waves mm. uh, mentally and maybe not quite skillfully, but almost the same. But physically, I'm just so out of whack. Whereas like I used to be in around heavy waves, like, you know, at least, you know, a few times a month, if not like weekly. Yeah. Now, I wouldn't surf for weeks and weeks. And then I <laughs> meander out to the cliffs on an eight to 10 foot day and think it's all going to be fine. And yeah, over the years, I had a couple of close calls where I was like, wow, I'm not actually cut out for this. Like, I'm just not in the game enough to be yeah. able to. I had one scenario where I I never get caught out. That's my game. I don't get caught out because I, I don't want to snap boards or lose energy. But I was, anyway, I was there at the cliffs and a friend of mine, it was his birthday and I was going in and I was like, oh, he just came out. So I went over and chatted to him and I was just chatting to him, took my eye off the ball, massive, like 10, 12 foot seconds in and got caught out and I don't get caught out and I did not like that. Wow. Went over the falls, snapped the leash and just sank to the bottom. Like just went like down to the depths and I was like. Oh dear! Like, that's <laughs> oh dear! Place to be two wave hold down and yeah, coming up like jellyfish. You know, no strength in my arms and having to swim all the way home. And I was just like, yeah, I'm not really around waves like this enough to be getting myself in those situations. So, those situations, yeah. Yeah, I just have to be a lot more uh, picky, really, with my days. Just make sure it's really good days and pick waves and I'm you know I'm pretty good at picking waves so I can just now be really cautious on what waves I pick yeah uh, and have you got your kids have you got your kids in on on uh, fun little runners not particularly like we go down to the beach loads all the summer um but I really can't, can't quite you know consciously me and my wife are really not pushing them into surfing at all like we're, yeah it's like I love seeing them playing ankle high water and just rolling around the sand and just loving the sea like and loving being in the ocean that is what i want i don't i don't want them to feel the surfing bug um yet unless they do if they do go for it but i'm not you know i, I we they have a little board and we have you know long boards and stuff and when it's really small i you know bring them out in the long board and they can sit on the front and do things like that but mm. they don't really, they're not looking for it you know and they're not you know they're not getting the mad addiction yet so i like it i like the innocence where they're at and i just want to keep it like that for as long as i can because more than likely they'll probably end up uh dragging me surfing like i did to my parents so i've I've noticed that with our kids we live like a five minute walk from the beach and um in the summer especially they're just they they will stand at, at about like maybe thigh thigh deep and then yeah. they'll they'll just duck their heads under every little bit of white water that comes in and they can be there for Two three hours, and they, they come in like blue lips, yeah. but the biggest smile, and you're just like, if you're happy doing that, that's just that's, that's just perfect. That's it. Like seeing them getting that much of a buzz and a high of that, like that's that's perfect. Like that's yeah. what you want. <laughs> that's, that's all you need. Yeah, that's yeah. so cool. Um, onto your farm. Are there, do you ever like? Because it'd be so nice for families to come and visit, like what you do. Are there are there enough opportunities for people to come and? check out what you do and camp and hang out and spend like a week just, you know, doing that kind of thing. Yeah. We've tried all sorts of things. We've had so many different versions and yeah, like I, and I really tried to, another thing I tried to do was uh, 
uh, a campsite and we applied for planning permission and everything and we're going for it and then the neighbors had a freak out about the traffic okay i just yeah i i gotta live with them so i said look you don't want it it's fine so i i pulled that plug which is sad because i i have so many people who do want to come and see the place Mm. and it should be a very low-key they were just thinking stag dues that's what they were thinking right and i was like i can't convince them otherwise so i'm just gonna say let's not do it i don't you know i don't want to fall out with them um, yeah. But I do farm tours uh, a couple of times a year. Um, yeah, there might be three or four farm tours this year, I'd say. Um, and that's a really nice way for people to get to see the whole place and ask questions. The thing with the campsite was it was going to be a campsite with a training center and a commercial kitchen. That was the whole thing. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Losing the campsite, but we're still going ahead with the training center and the commercial kitchen. Mm-hmm. So once we have the training center, I'll then run more courses and weekends and different things. and then. Once the kitchen gets built as well, we'll be able to host, you know, evenings and events and talks and different things like that. So there'll be there'll be more things happening for people. But at the moment, my biggest priority for the kind of short, medium term is I used to do a lot of stuff with like the general public, and it's great. And you are getting like hundreds of people, thousands of people have been through the farm, I'd say, but they're not farmers, and they're not going to be farmers. And all this energy is going to people trying to convince them to buy a little bit different. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas my big thing is we need more farmers. We need people getting trained with the experience, hands-on, of how to run and set up a farm. Mm-hmm. Because you're not getting that in an agricultural college or any university. So I'm really focusing now on internships where I take on two interns for the year, for six months, and they basically work their ass off but they get to feel what it's like firsthand and i'll be there to mentor them and then after the internship when they start like i'm only taking people on if they're starting a farm of some kind Mm -hmm. and when they start like i can be there on the phone and you know what what would what would you do with this idea or whatever and trying to just build that network of up-and-coming farmers because seriously i think it's our i think there's plenty of information coming out and the movement towards you know the way we need to go and i think the consumers will catch up pretty quick i don't think the consumers have a problem like they'll switch their buying habits tomorrow if they mm-hmm. if they understand why but if everyone wanted to buy regenerative food tomorrow we would all starve because mm-hmm. there isn't regenerative farmers there isn't yeah so you and it's very hard to go and tell conventional farmers to change that's just not going to happen but there is a real keenness from people to get into this, but there isn't people, you know, supporting because the route to farming is not easy. Like there's there's no supports, there's no grants or anything like that. And then if you're going to go buy land and build infrastructure, like the investment, unless you inherit a farm, the investment in buying land and the whole thing, like you're talking millions. Yeah. You're basically saying you're not going to make, you're going to be in debt for about 15 years. Know, and that's not a great occupation to start. So it's trying to help these guys who are keen and they're going to make a huge sacrifice for the rest of their lives going into an, an occupation that nobody's really given them any support in. Yeah. Especially anyway, are those yeah. objectives. Like, what, what do you want to do? I want to be in debt for 15 years. Oh, great. Off you go. Every hour of the day and not really get paid fairly for it. And you're like, yeah. These people, if they want to go for it, I really want to support them. I really want to try and 
get that movement going because that mm. is to me the cornerstone of the future the next 10 years we need a lot more of those people getting into it because when we have more financial collapse uh, environmental collapse uh, you know health scares again or anything like this like the indus in the industrial model is very fragile it's all based on machinery and you know the supply chain working and all that stuff mm. so who are these people who can do it in your locality because they're not being you know encouraged to do it what do you think about um i'm, I'm just wary of time we I've, I've really enjoyed this conversation we're, we're 55 minutes this is probably no doubt the longest podcast i've done so far and i really do thank you for your time i just want to ask a couple more questions yeah, yeah. Um, what's your thought on things like i mean bearing in mind an investment of having your own farm um if you're not able to actually inherit one from from uh, your elders what, what are your thoughts on vertical farming like in urban spaces and stuff yeah, and, and taking over like a, a warehouse to then turn it into like fast growing salad dens. Yeah, like my, definitely. And they, unfortunately, that's maybe what people ha- end up having to do. And that's, and you can, we're very, we're very uh, ingenuitive creatures and we can make a lot of stuff happen, which is cool. But my thing is like, the acres and acres of land that are being mistreated and not used properly, we should really concentrate on what's practical and what's really, you know, can do a lot of change and store a lot of carbon and do all the stuff with, with a lot less inputs. You see, all those other things, you know, there's a lot of inputs in building stuff and bringing things in all the time. There's a lot of that kind of stuff. Whereas, you know, there's acre like there's enough land on the planet to feed us all ten times over and store all the carbon tomorrow if we did it right. Yeah. So we kind of just need a a movement of farm. See, if we have all you need is more farmers going the right direction, and then those neighbors will just follow suit. You don't need to con- try and convince them. You just need to have more farms doing it around them. Yeah. And then it happens. But yeah, all that like uh, urban farming, it's amazing. Like you can do wonders in a small space and I, I i always encourage anyone to grow your leaves and uh, at the very least you can do that in a very very small space and it's not hard like, yeah but it's the storing of carbon it's the building of soil it's bringing back biodiversity these are huge issues that need to be solved and who are those stewards like who are those trained up people who are going to take the reins of this mm-hmm. huge responsibility that's kind of overlooked that they think I don't know, governments think they can just throw money at it or something, but it's actual human beings with the managerial skills to, you know, make the right decisions on a big ecosystem scale. Like, it's yeah. it's not small stuff. You know, you're talking, you know, millions of acres that need to be managed correctly. And yeah. the cool thing, the positive thing is the amount of grassland, for example, that's on the planet, if that's managed correctly, it would sequest all... CO2 for the atmosphere tomorrow, like mm. that. And there's no investment. All there is is a change of management. Mm-hmm. So there's no tools, there's no machinery. All it is is just a different way, a slightly different way of managing that ecosystem, and everything could be going the right direction. Mm. So potential is right there if it just can start going that way. Whereas all the technological ideas and all that kind of stuff, I just think is a wormhole of. We love technology, and I just don't think it's ever going to be our our savior. Our savior, yeah. Who? who this is my last question. <laughs> um, you, you've got you work, you know, unbelievably hard. You've got a third on the way. Um, you know, you, and you've got such a great voice for, you know, essentially like 
planet saving stuff how where, where can how do you where do you find the time to to tell people about this and how you know because you have to use technology like social media to tell people and i can imagine you're not really into that kind of thing and so what's your how, how do you get your point across to people yeah i don't know i'm just i'm open to doing it like you guys have asked me to do this and it wasn't perfectly smooth and easy because time and technology isn't always you know easy but uh, i just think yeah if it like i did a podcast recently and i never know where they go and people get in touch and they say wow i'm gonna do something now like and when i hear if one person does something different isn't it great you know why not yeah it's important i think it's it's not social media that's going to fix the world. It's not okay. uh, just farmers are going to fix the world. It's not, you know, uh, just media in general going to get the message. It's all the combination. We can do, we have to kind of do it from every angle if we can. Like, we also have to mind our health and not burn out. And that would be a big uh, thing I have to watch out because I do overdo it. And it's, yeah. But if we can, you know, get the word out there and help people that's what we kind of all like. we're all in it together like we're all <laughs> we all have the same goal at the end of the day like we all want our kids to be healthy and happy and eat well and not get sick and we want to see nature flourish around us like i don't think any of us have a, a different objective mm. and we just kind of have to get on the same somewhat on the same page of do do your best with what you've got and you know if we all kind of work to that kind of common collective it's yeah i think it's exciting and it's enjoyable to try and share that we can do it together and and the thing that the one thing that people i always think that people don't realize is the problems might may be big and like i think the political world is just a disaster like it, it puts people off ever a solution ever happening because it's all so mumbo jumbo complicated and policies the change always happens from people on the ground individuals on the ground it doesn't it's never ever come from the top down Never has, never will it. Oh, every revolution, every uprising, they happen from individuals doing an action, someone else, you know, doing another action. It's that, it's that kind of step by step, because it's steady, it's grounded, it's it's rooted in 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 real time, real actions. Yeah. Whereas you can strike a pen, send millions a different direction, but it, it's not a, it doesn't happen like that. So just you know, we can we can all make change, and that's all we can do after that. And on that note, Ferg, I'm going to say thank you so much for your time uh, and your and your and your wisdom and 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 everything else that goes along with it. It's been really really enjoyable. Um, and I, I hope your harvest day is tomorrow. Is that correct? Yeah, first thing. Yep. Yeah, I, I hope that goes well. And uh, good luck with numero trois. I hope that goes well too. And um, yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time, thank you, Jim. Yeah, good luck. Good luck with all your little ones and. Thanks very much. Cool. Take it easy, man. Thanks a lot. Bye.